Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Georgie Courage-Cole, the founder and editor of Sherlock's, and welcome to this Success Stories podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the co-founder of the legendary Fabric House, one of our absolute favourites at Sherlock's for Moy. Uh, the founder in question is Martin Efson, and he is one of the most revered names in the interiors industry, as well as setting up his current enterprise. He's also responsible for making Farrow and Ball a household name, proving he doesn't just have a sharply honed creative eye, but also business skill when it comes to building quintessentially British brands. Martin, welcome. Uh, I'm really excited for this one. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. So anyway, we've finally done it. Uh, I'm talking to you. You're in Cork at the moment in your beautiful house, which I've actually found online. And uh, it's really rather lovely, which I'm not surprised to see. Well, that's very kind. And I'm delighted to join you today. Um, And that was quite an introduction. I hope I can live up to the, uh, um, the your prologue. Tell me, Martin, can we, can we, I mean, Farrable, wow, what, what a story, what a brand. Can you talk to us about your life before Farrable and, you know, what you did a bit about your upbringing and, and really what sent you down this interior's path? I'm not quite sure where to start, but I guess I think um, I would probably be described as a serial entrepreneur, not necessarily um, a very particularly positive thing to say about somebody, because it just sounds as though you sort of would happily do a bit of this and a bit of that, which isn't actually the case. But I had been involved in uh, several businesses before Farrow and Ball, um, where uh, I had learned a lot, but hadn't actually made a, uh, a great deal of money. Um, but it did set me up um, with a range of experiences that served me well with um, turning Farrow and Ball and later on for more into the brands that they are today. Those businesses, what were they? Did you go to university? Um, I did, um, although yeah, I, I, I got a very poor degree because it was actually in London and I'd never lived in London before and I absolutely loved every minute of it and um, <laughs> the having to do anything academic was a bit of a sort of nasty inconvenience (laughs) Uh, and uh, my parents lived abroad and so there was nobody around to keep an eye on me and um, I I had a great time. I then went back to live in Ghana which was uh, the home of my father um, and uh, I'd never really lived, I'd lived there for a couple of years as a child but I'd never really experienced it and I just wanted to go and um, sort of get it out of my system so to speak. I ended up living down there for four years, and it was um, absolutely brilliant time. It what, was, what were you doing in Ghana for four years? I ended up exporting live tropical fish <laughs> to all over the world, um, which nobody wow. had done there before. And there were very various unique species that were coveted by collectors in Japan and the States and in, in Germany. 
Um, and uh, it was um, really interesting, particularly as I got to travel around the country, which in those days was you know, quite, quite challenging um, and amazingly interesting. And it's where I first started to get uh, aware, an awareness for some of the environmental issues that we're now we're very much facing today. Ghana wasn't really my cultural framework of reference. And I always felt very, very welcome, but slightly not entirely at home. Um, and I would, had never intended actually to even stay there that long. Um, and I just wanted to go and learn a bit more about the country, which I certainly did, um, and had an absolutely wonderful time and I have really delightful people. And I've got a lot of family there, so it was good to being able to um, meet family that I didn't really know. And anyhow, then I came back um, to England and um, was at a bit of a loss of what to do. Um, I wasn't going to go and work for anybody because the sort of, as I said, the entrepreneurial streak runs deep within me. And to cut a long story short, my business partner, who happens to have been my friend for over 50 years, Tom Helm, was decorative decorations advisor to the National Trust. And he had come across this small uh, paint making business in the West Country. And he asked me to come and have a look at it because he said, look, they make incredible range of, of finishes that people don't make anymore. But I'm slightly anxious about the company. And I think you might have an idea as to, you know, how robust it is or otherwise. And, um, and if there's something that we might be able to do with it. So I went down to uh, Wimborne in Dorset and, um, and sure enough, this was a business that was not in great shape. When you say it wasn't in great shape, what, what do you mean by that? It had been underinvested for many, many, many years. It was had, had no real direction. Um, it was hanging on by its fingertips in the, um, uh, as a business. And um, they employed 14 people out of a decrepit 6,000 square foot factory um, and um, would just grasp at any business that happened to come their way. Um, they had no real business plan or um or direction um but they still made this wonderful product um so the upshot of it was well tom if you have um great faith in in what they manufacture i can put together a a, a deal where we can get on board and give it a go and 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 see where we end up what what sort of size was the business at that stage? Uh, it, it employed 14 people who didn't know whether they're going to be paid next Friday and uh, and uh, had a turnover of under £500,000 per annum. And by the time we sold the business, we'd do that sort of turnover in, in a couple of days. But Amazing. Anyway, the upshot was in April 1992, we took a majority stake in what was then called Farrenball Brackets Southern Limited. And on the, day of, on, on the day of our sort of acquisition, we renamed it Farrenball. We never did find Farrenball Northern or whatever else was <laughs> been around at some point. Um, and then we embarked on an incredible adventure. And uh, our first mistake was that we both had other activities and we both thought, well, we might be able to do this a couple of days a week and see where yes, we Yes, I read that. I, I was really interested in, in that point. I, I read that you... You said that in another interview. What was the team like? Did you keep the existing team? You said there were 14 people. The answer is yes. Um, it would have been simpler to allow the business to, to go under and, and to resurrect it. Um, uh, but then we would have lost the essential DNA. It was very important to us to sort of keep the, keep the, the, the company and keep its history 
um, and build on that. We made a, our first big decision was to ring fence the manufacturing because after all the product was was superb and then change everything else and, and build on that. And seeing as everybody in the business was pretty much on the on the factory floor, um, they of course kept their jobs. Um, mm. And uh, they used to do, it was amazing. They had these wonderful old machines called edge runners, which are massive great grinding machines and grind their own pigments to make put into their product. Um, the biggest selling paint when we took over the business, the color, the biggest selling colors were Ford Tractor Blue and Massey Ferguson Red, because most of their business was um, to you know, farms and, and, and estates around in around Dorset. Um, and one fabulous product, which was environmentally a complete nightmare, was called um, chlorinated rubber, which if anybody remembers having a swimming pool back in the day before they were all tiled, they were painted with this, um, well, actually quite toxic paint. And uh, they still even made that, which was uh, just extraordinary. Um, anyway. Um, Gosh, something that you, you saw, um, because Farnborough no longer make paint for swimming pools. Um, no, no. <laughs> um, so, so presumably it wasn't, you know, such consumer business as it is brand. It, it was really a trade brand. And uh, we it wasn't something that we were particularly knew anything about or particularly keen on what we wanted to do was harness their expertise with all these old decorative finishes that nobody made anymore and uh, and build down on those and take them out to a wider market so what we set out to do we we managed to achieve the industrial paint business just sort of withered on the vine and it wasn't right. anything really were able to do much with anyway and also le uh, legislation was going against it because a lot of the old industrial paints were, were environmentally not not great and so we yeah. were quite happy to see the back of those and you said that you and your business partner Tom I mean you said he was your best friend is he still <laughs> uh, yeah yeah no we, we we've known each other now for just over 50 years um and uh it's quite extraordinary and and obviously for the first 20 or 25 years or whatever it was we didn't work together and then of course there are challenges along the way because any partnership is you know it's like a marriage or, or whatever else you've got to work at it and you've got to keep on growing evolving but generally our vision has been very much one and our skills have been fairly complementary and it's just worked out um, and we're both quite driven. So it's, it's been between us. We've been able to um, realise the, the, the shared vision. You say your skills are complementary. Do you wear different hats and what are those? Yes, we do. Uh, but all decisions are sort of joint. So um, Tom comes from uh, an art history background. And at the time we bought into Farrenborn, he was the decorations advisor to the National Trust. Mm. So he very much wore the um, uh, the creative hat. And he's a fantastic colorist. And the colors are basically down to Tom and everything else is me. But that said, there's no way we made any major decisions without cross-referencing um, it to, with one another. If Tom and I wouldn't have it on our walls or on our furniture, it didn't happen. Um, mm. And so we would, um, you know, the, our office floor would be covered in samples of things that we would together go through and ditch and say, yeah, we'll take this one to the next stage and on we'll go. So you know, if we didn't like it, it didn't happen. And that's about as much as um, um, consumer research we've ever done. <laughs> You've obviously got a natural flair then. You mentioned earlier that one of the mistakes you made was thinking that you could 
run the business part-time. At what point did you commit to full-time? Well, we, we both had responsibilities elsewhere, but within two years, we were both full-time in the business. And before that, we were full-time anyway, but just working sort of ridiculous hours. Um, and uh, the, the, the first great challenge was prioritising the priorities because everything was a priority to sort out in, in the company. And we, we didn't have a huge amount of financial resources, so we didn't have the luxury of being able to um, take any time to resolve the issues. We had to deal with everything and turn it into a cash generating business as, as quickly as we could to satisfy the investment program we know we knew we needed to implement if we were going to do what we wanted to do. And how did you raise the capital to invest in the business? We literally nickled and dimed it. We structured a deal where we got on board into the company with an option to buy out the then owner. And the then owner was the second owner of Farrow and Ball. He had been the company secretary when John Farrow and Richard Ball um, retired and and took over the business. I I don't know the terms of any any deal and had run it as a lifestyle company for over 20 years. And it was from him that um, we bought the business. Initially, we came on board to stabilise it and and, and, and uh, revitalise it and then had an option over the balance of his shares in a few years time so in other words it was relatively cheap to get on board and what little money Mm. we did have we put into the company and built on it from there I mean you obviously saw you saw the opportunity for a consumer brand you mentioned that it was more of a trade business well who were your competitors who was in the consumer paint business I mean Dulux who who else was there we knew what we were going to try and do with this business right from the beginning there's no point going to all this trouble and getting on board and, and with, with, without a plan. And we invented the premium paint market or the, the designer paint market. So initially, there were no competitors because uh, yeah, it, it was a completely new market area. Uh, once we get started gaining some traction and some visibility, um, we had a lot of imitators, um, either people new to the, to the space or some established players like Dulux. And Dulux actually were quite helpful initially in that they launched uh, what I think they called the Heritage Paint range, which just added sort of noise to the space, which was you know good mm. from a marketing perspective. Um, mm. And then they were very naughty and um, uh, copied our entire range. And uh, we bit the bullet and, and, and started proceedings against them. And um, they finally withdrew and, and you know, things were, were back to normal. But we were able to maintain a deep blue water between us and the, and the competition by a continual program of investment, investment in the brand and investment in our manufacturing. And so it got increasingly expensive for would-be competitors to get on board and do what we're doing. It would have been relatively straightforward for the very large global manufacturers to do it, but they were playing a different game and weren't really, other than the the sort of small Dulux, they weren't really um, interested in what we were doing because in in terms of scale, it was still very small, even if we had a large slice of the designer paint market. In the, in, the, in the total volume, it was in, inconsequential to them. So it really didn't matter. What did the growth look like? I mean, you bought the business in 92. You sold it in 2006. I mean, you sold it for, you know, 80 million. What an in, incredible outcome. But yeah, how did you build that value? And, and was it was it quite quick? Was it sort of steady and organic? The first few years were slow and difficult and we were living pretty much hand to mouth. Why were they difficult, Martin? Was that because you were basically 
completely creating a new category and you were having to get we the consumer on board. We were the business on a very low, a small budget. And so it was, everything was very carefully thought through and we weren't able to spend a lot of money in any one area. And we were mm. trying to do some, something on, on many levels. We were trying to establish a red, efficient manufacturing business and whilst also trying to um, establish a brand. And any brand owner knows that building a brand is difficult and expensive and generally takes quite a long time. Mm. And this was a whole new category. So seeing our product was believing. So getting people to see it was a, a massive, initially a massive challenge. And we have a huge debt to um, the then editor of World of Interiors called Min Hock, who absolutely got it from the off and did a big spread on Farrow and Ball and our paint range. We also entered into a licensing deal with the National Trust to give us the sort of credibility that as a, a, a company that no one had heard of, we didn't have at the time. Um, and that licensing deal uh, served them well because they ended up earning a tremendous amount of commission out of it and, and us very well to get our name and brand established. All of that was happening in those early days and getting the interior design world to to start using us um, was one of our first challenges. And with the help of sort of Min Hog, World of Interiors, et cetera, this began to happen. And like so many things, when the sort of leading people in the area start using, over time, other people follow. Um, and it became a, you know, a great thing with uh, you know, people de decorating their dining rooms and uh, dinner party chatter. God, that's an incredible colour on the walls. What is it? And so on. Mm -hmm. So word of mouth was uh, was a big thing. And again, word of mouth, I mean, that takes takes a while to uh, gain some Yeah. And, and just back to that that growth. So you said the first couple of years, you know, you were bootstrapping the business and trying then, to show up with a brand with not very much. How, yeah, how did that... We then had 12 years of double-digit uh, sales and profit growth. Um, and we were... Um, opening up new markets and um, we were exporting uh, we're growing in, in all our chosen markets extremely um, robustly it, it was great and we reinvested a very large proportion of all our profits and that's what turbocharged the growth we became a pretty efficient manufacturer um, the wallpaper we reinvented traditional um, machinery um, to make traditionally man-made bespoke product as efficient as we possibly could and all of that sort of served us well and our showrooms were again a departure from the norm that formula proved to be successful and I'm not sure how many we had at the time we sold the business but we'd gone from the first one in in 1998 in Fulham Road to I can't really remember um, around 20 or so and I think they have 60 or even more um, showrooms now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What were interior designers using before Paramble? I mean, now we've got Edward Bulmer and Green and, you know, Peyton Arby and blah, blah, blah. You know, you created this market, didn't you? You created this category. But what were people using? What were interior designers using before Farrell and Ball? 
the, the really good interior designers were mixing up their own colours. And in right. fact, before Fire on Ball, that's what Tom had been doing for the National Trust. Uh, there was no you know, nowhere to go for great colour or specialist finishes the way that it, that it became with us. Interesting. Uh, and talk to us about the colour. It's an incredible range of colours. The world would not be the same place if you know we didn't have elephant's breath in it. I remember my husband saying years ago when grey was the only colour I put on my walls, if I... I think if I stood still long enough, you'd paint me elephant's breath. <laughs> I mean, who came up with the colour names? That's actually quite an interesting story in that um, John Fowler of um, uh, Colfax and Fowler fame always used to mix up or create colours for his own jobs um, uh, throughout his working life. And he had great descriptions and um, elephant's breath was one of them, which he used to describe a particular kind of grey that he uh, he created. And then another one of his was mouse's back. One of his sort of go-to carpet colours was a grey that he named mouse's back. And I don't know if you know, but it, mouse's back works extremely well as a colour for a floor paint. Um, so very yeah. clever fellow. And then um, most of the original names uh, for the paints, um, they named themselves. For example, back in 1805, there was no word for the colour pink. And um, dead salmon was the description for the pink that was to be used to repaint part of Kettleston Hall. Oh. So uh, hence dead salmon. And picture gallery red, I think, came from the picture gallery at Attingham Park. As I say, most of the colours had a historical reference. But one thing that we singularly failed to do at Farron Ball was to get over the point that we didn't make historical colours because we were uh, in the business of, of, of recreating that type of history. We made historical colours or produced historical colours that had survived. And the reason they had survived is that they worked in decorating schemes. And there's absolutely no reason why those wonderful colours weren't going to work through decorating schemes today as they did two or three hundred years ago. Mm. Um, mm. And that was that was the big point. Talking about your favourite colours, what were they? What are they still? It, it's very, very difficult to answer. I want three of your favourite colours. Okay, well, my my default white is off-white. And in fact, the room I'm sitting in at the moment between the uh, painted timber, it's all painted off-white. And it just is a fantastic, soft white, more on the grey scale than on the yellow scale, and just is a, uh, a brilliant colour to combine with almost anything. Elephant's Breath is a, very, is a, is a really good colour. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great colour, isn't it? Yeah, depends in what the situation is and and what I, I'm, I'm going to use it for. Well, I, again, uh, the white palette is a really tricky one and is huge. And another default white is lime white, as it's the kind of name suggests, a green tinge to it, and it can work in certain situations extremely well. Very, very good in the country because outside there's a lot of grass and green, and uh, it, it just sits very comfortably with all of that. Well, I'm going to tell you my all-time favourite has got to be setting plaster. Oh, really? Okay. It's just such a good pink. It's just, I think it looks amazing anywhere, in any room. I, I just love it. I also love dimity. That's a great colour, isn't it? It's very good. But interesting on the uh, setting plaster, pink as a colour family 
is incredibly popular at the moment. Pink has, has ramped itself up the sales figures at Femoy mm. over the last couple of years. Middleton pink's a pretty colour. My daughter had that in her room. It's a great colour. I could talk about colours for ages. I mean, there are so many, so many. My old front door was pigeon. That was a great colour. Blackened, that's a great colour. That was the front of my old house. Anyway, so it grew and grew and grew. Was it a quite straightforward journey? I don't think that any interesting journey is always straightforward, but the problems or the the issues you encounter along the way can become stimulating challenges or generally are stimulating challenges. It was a fascinating time. And because we're dealing with a product that we're passionate about and therefore enjoy um, and dealing with a range of customers who are generally just very nice people, um, who just want to make their uh, environments a lot nicer and and uh, got the shared interest in in home, etc. You know, you've got a great product, you've got a wonderful customer base. It's it's very difficult to ask for much more. Um, mm. I would struggle to sell a product to that I didn't really understand or my heart wasn't in, or to a bunch of people who didn't really care. Um, that would be. A real problem to me and one that um, if I wasn't able to get passionate, I don't see how I could excite anybody else about it. Um, but what has been just a wonderful thing is that I, I mentioned that we with Farrenball started with 14 people. And by the time we sold it, we had nearly 400 people who were earning decent salaries and have a, a good career path. It's wonderful to be adding that sort of value to society. Yeah. You sold it in 2006. Are you fully out of the business? Oh, completely. Tom and I were absolutely clear that we were not going to um, stick around and, and see somebody else maybe making decisions about our baby that we were unable to yeah. influence. So, no, we weren't going to be there. Let's move on to Femoy. God, I can't tell you what fans we are of Femoy at Sherlock's. I just can't. I was telling my husband, I was interviewing you this morning. I was like, that's Femoy, that's Femoy, that's <laughs> pointing at things in our house. Um, so you sold Baron Ball. Did you do an earn out? Did you have to stick around for a bit? No, 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 no. The, uh, the, the, the day we signed, we yeah. crossed the threshold and never looked back. We did have a non-compete for a while, but we had no intention of going back into what we'd already done anyway. And um, Tom and I had considered range extensions at F&B, but stuck. We were getting so much growth and uh, from our core business, there was no point um, um, diversifying in any way. Um, we could have done that, but it wasn't. It's not what we chose to do. And Tom and I absolutely love selling what we make. And um, we weren't suddenly going to become manufacturers of all sorts of other, other product when we were um, so focused on, on, on growing what we were already doing. We had a lunch together. We, we sort of were seeing each other regularly anyway. And we had a lunch where we probably drank a bit too much. I don't know. And we decided that fabric had been the, the, the natural extension of what we had been doing. And maybe we should, uh, it was an itch we needed to scratch. And even though it was a very crowded marketplace, lots of manufacturers, lots of product, highly competitive, um, we felt there was an opportunity because a lot of what is out there or had been out there was very samey and printed textiles have become 
very lifeless. And um, it sounds a little pretentious, but it's absolutely true. What we wanted to do was bring back the enjoyment of the printed textile. And so we then had to embark on a um, adventure as to figure out how we were going to do it and get going. And it took two years to get into the starting blocks. And then um, this coming year um, or next year will be our 10th anniversary from launching. We had forgotten actually how difficult it is to start a business. Uh, And of course, (laughs) inevitable teething problems, particularly when you're looking at a totally vertically integrated company where everything from the specification of the yarn to through to the, um, uh, the, the the design, the printing, um, or the manufacture process, um, and the, the retailing uh, overlaid by, of course, the brand, all being done in-house. And so we were setting up all of those elements of a, of a, of a brand new business. Fortunately, all that effort and energy has been, um, been worthwhile. And you acquired Farrenville, well, you bought an existing business, an existing brand with... You know, you talked about ring fencing, the manufacturing, and you know that, that's, that's a big part of getting business off the ground. That that is getting that right, and that's that's really something that's so intrinsic to the success of business, isn't it? The more you created from scratch, was that a lot harder? Well, it, different challenges. In some ways, it was simpler because we didn't have any of the legacy business that needed sorting out. We were able to um, start off with exactly uh, implementing our vision. And we also brought along a lot of experience from the um, Farron Ball days, not least in the product itself for the colour and colour technology, um, but also the the key business model um, where we were setting up a manufacturing business and also a branded business. Um, And we really adopted the F&B model and superimposed it onto a different um, product category, but addressing the same market. And, and why same, is it made? We make everything um, in um, just outside of Marlborough in Wiltshire. It's all made in the UK, is it really? Yeah. Um, the, the factory is a mile oh. from my house. Gosh. Wow. Amazing. And did you see a big gap for Femoy? I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there are so many fabric houses. Yeah, it really does stand out. It really has such a strong identity. And it's not a sort of strong brand. It's a lovely... You know, the designs are very gentle, but they have colour. I think that's what's so clever about it, is it's sort of, it's brave because it's pattern and colour, but in such a, a gentle way. Did you feel that that was missing from the market? Well, we did. I, I, I think there are sort of two things. As I said, we brought along this sort of colour um, knowledge and technology to, 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 the, uh, uh, to, to a new product category for us. Also, by manufacturing it uh, all ourselves, we're able to produce a very wide range of colours. So we're not restricted by stock holding constraints because we print to order. So we can have 80 planes or whatever it may be. Um, We can have 25 patterns instead of five we can have uh, 25 colorways in a pattern, I mean, instead of um, uh, just a half a dozen. Um, and that way, you're producing something that quite literally will cover you know, anybody's requirements. But m- probably more importantly, um, it's not just about the color. It's how the colors work together. And for instance, in our showrooms, we have a color wall 
where all the fabrics we design in swatches are on one wall. So you can see everything, um, uh, well, not at a glance, but everything um, simultaneously. Um, and it's how the colours work together that's a very mm. important part of what we do. And always has and, it, and it's so clever, you could virtually take any two fabrics, couldn't you? And, and they would work together. It's, it's amazing, that really. That's right. And also arranging the, the patterns in colour families has served us well, because we're, we're convinced that people, first of all, think about a colour and then a pattern. So by presenting everything in colour families of red, yellow, green, blues and neutrals, again, makes it much easier to shop. It's also a great discipline when we're actually creating ranges to be thinking in terms of the colour families. That makes total sense. Can you just talk to us about what you launched with in terms of the range? It was it was just fabric, right, when you launched? It was just fabric when we launched, but because we also um, were thinking of showrooms and some retail, um, people aren't only in the market for bolts of fabric. That's quite a, a very specific sector. We also wanted some sort of impulse purchase uh, items and the natural um, extensions there, of course, are cushions, um, which we, we make and um, lampshades and Tom and I only arrived at the lampshade um, decision in that we found it so difficult to get coloured or patterned lampshades. Now in the decades since there's been quite a lot of people who have um, tweaked that one as well but they don't do it in the way we do it and um, most most people producing the lampshades aren't actually the manufacturers so again it gives us a lot of flexibility and they are that- very special your lampshades i i have to say i have a few of them and um, i had to sneak those through the other budgets in my husband <laughs> <laughs> lampshades and cushions a bit like a painted wall they they, they can almost by themselves transform a room so it's very easy to update a, a tired room or, or with, with with some cushions and some nice lampshades and lighting is, is as you probably know is, is is just so transformational in a home and and it just um for not a huge amount of money you can do great things it has a real timeless quality to it and again that's so clever and i mean god it's playing into your hands this sort of trend for the English country house look that's very much kind of back in, isn't it? I mean, I presume you've had an amazing few years on the back of that and and all of our appetite for, yeah, a sort of gentler, more cosy feel in our homes. Yeah, uh, well, it's exactly that. The country house look is very much a quintessentially British thing. And it is comforting, reassuring, relaxed, and all those things that we've so coveted, um, especially during the, um, the last 18 months with COVID. So it's what we know and what we do. So it has very much, as you say, played into our hands. I defy anyone to say that it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a good look. It absolutely is. And, you know, it lasts, doesn't it? That's what's so lovely. Can you talk us a bit more about the growth of Femoy since you launched it nearly 10 years ago? Yes, I think our vision was to bring back the enjoyment of the of the printed fabric. And um, we feel that we have done that. When people look at our patterns um, and our colourways and don't just see the colour, they see something and say, gosh, I wonder how that was you know printed or goodness that looks like a woven fabric whereas in fact it's it's very much just a printed fabric um and that you don't see a great deal of um uh, these days um and so that whole additional dimension 
we definitely have sort of brought to the, the, the fabric party, so to speak. And the patterns are all unique. Um, we don't sort of find a historical pattern and shrink it or increase mm-hmm. the size of it. Where everything we produce um, is starts off by being hand-drawn in our studio. Your new flag print is just stunning um i imagine that one's doing very well but god i'm a huge fan of that it is and it's quite interesting with our last few launches you usually it will take 12 to 18 months to see a new collection rising up the sales stats and our last few launches we've got quite a lot of the uh, new patterns in various colorways getting into top sellers very very quickly which suggests we're doing something right and one of the reasons the cycle can be quite long is that um most of our business is still with interior designers and of course the the gestation period of a project is you know, from concept to installation can be several years so if you're an integral part of that um, program, it will take a while for some of the patterns to really start showing um, their strength. Um, mm-hmm. And if something is really loved, um, then you can find a way to build it in somewhere. So some, so obviously we're doing some things that are sort of appealing to people to get them into their schemes sooner rather than later. And in terms of the fabrics, what are the really popular ones? I mean, I'm sure the flag is doing brilliantly, but... Can you share some others? As I said, it's always my favourite question. I always want to know bestsellers. It, it is a constantly changing sort of table of what's yeah. doing really well and, and where. And it also it changes from market to market. We're exporting a huge amount, mainly to uh, the United States. And there they have a slightly different um, sort of aesthetic. A certain yeah, colour. they love a geometric, yeah. don't they, as well? The, they do very much so, and also depending on whether you're in the Sun Belt or you're in the Rust Belt, um, you've got you know the more as you would kind of expect a lot more of the brighter, vibrant colours are selling in California and, and Texas, Florida, um, and you've got a more muted palette in, in say the um, the north and north northeast and some and maybe the northwest as well. Um, so every market's slightly different. What is exciting though about the English market is that it's much more eclectic, and you'll see probably the broadest range of products sold in in, in the English market than in many of the others. And again, I think that plays into the hands of the English country house look, where you've got a broader, um, a, a, or should I say, a less regimented um, idea of what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong. Yeah, I'm guessing that the Hamble, the Wicker, and the Rabana are pretty, pretty much up there. With you're, you're right. Um, wicker in all markets is incredibly popular and has been for quite a while. But you've got, you know, Cloud, Wave, and Astrea, the very large floral that we launched, I don't know, 18 months or two years oh. ago, been incredibly successful. It's uh, fab, that. It's really fab. It's quite different for you, isn't it? But it's it's clever. I'm not mad on a floral, but it, it really works, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's been somewhat deconstructed. And again, it's only in three colours as opposed to 14 colours or whatever. Do you print to order? We do. Um, and that, uh, it serves us well on many levels. One, we're not mm. holding huge amounts of stock. Two, as I said before, we're able to um, launch many colorways because yeah, again, exactly. we don't have the uh, problem of 100 colors in stock in any one time, for example. 
Um, and three, we have a traditional printing um, a system and methods, but very um, slick, modern sales order processing. So orders that come in from all over, say today, make up the production schedule for tomorrow or the day after. And our commitment to our customers is um, we dispatch um, our product within five working days. Well, again, um, most of our competitors don't manufacture anything themselves. So if it's not in stock, well, you've got to wait eight to 12 weeks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Might be. yeah. Um, and, and this day and age, that kind of thing just doesn't work anymore. Mm. You know, people want it now, need it now. It's as simple as I that. I want it tomorrow or yesterday most yeah. of the time. So, yeah, how brilliant that you print order in the UK and, and you can turn it around. I mean, yeah. You know, COVID has been a pretty torrid time for very many people or nearly all of us. Um, but the one thing, well, there, there, there are several things that have come out of it that are, that are positives. Um, it's been a great catalyst on the technology. You know, the new practices of being able to um, work in a much more flexible way from home and the office, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are, are, are fantastic. And the other thing is most people's focus for the last 18 months has been home. And uh, we have definitely been the beneficiary of that. But we've also been um, helped immensely by the fact that we do do everything here in the UK ourselves. So as soon as we were able to recommence manufacturing, we didn't have long convoluted supply lines halfway around the world trying to get people in, in, in Asia making things and then not being able to ship them or whatever the issues might have been. We uh, were able to get back into manufacturing. We closed the canteen down we rejigged our um, work teams into um, smaller groups so if we did get COVID we would still be able to carry on and we were able to carry on supplying our customers throughout the pandemic and business was relatively good because the 20% of uh, disposable income that's usually spent on travel and entertaining was now being spent on home Um, and so there was that sort of boost as well which has been um, very well received i think the 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 focus on home isn't necessarily going to change um you know, we have entered a sort of a new phase um and uh, people are really appreciating quite what home means and like it or not we're spending a lot more time in them it's your home yeah yeah how big's the team how big is the business it's much smaller than you would think um i think our headcount now is approaching 50 a decade ago, it was zero, so it's not too terrible. But it is all about being as efficient as we possibly can. And so that would, that encompasses the, from everybody from the design team through to the dispatch and across the manufacturing, of course. And what's the plan? To sell it to private equity again? Not at all. Um, you know, we've sort of been there and done that. And we're enjoying it um, very much at the moment. We're enjoying particularly the creative um, side of it. We're enjoying growing it. And our desire in the in the short to medium term is to carry on growing organically and, and, and just see how we go. No, it's not a business that's for sale. <laughs> are there other businesses in the pipeline? Are there other gaps in the market you can see the need to fill? Well, one thing um, we've done um, just uh, in, over the last year and is now fully functioning is we've built a new lampshade um, uh, business um, and lampshade factory. Um, and that is um, set to grow. And we've got some other sort of extensions that we're working on. And um, we're just, just taking a step at a time. Well, uh, 
I will be watching um, in anticipation for what's to come. Um, before we finish, what advice would you have people listening who might have a desire to set up an interiors brand, to work in the interiors world? Well, if you're a budding interior designer, the first thing you should do is open an account with the boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's difficult um, because Tom and I have avoided very much along the way of trying of dictating. You know, we're, we're there to sort of offer as a, and people make their own choices. And so I don't have a huge amount of um, uh, advice for people getting going, but I do think several things that you need to be very passionate about what it is you do because running business, any business is difficult. And um, unless your heart's absolutely in it, it's going to make it very hard for it to work. If I was ever to write a book, which I'm definitely not, I think Woody Allen had the right answer to that one. He said, everyone's got a book in them, but that's generally the best place for it. Um, <laughs> I love that quote. Um, I was always going to call it 99% is easy. And that is, <laughs> it is that last percent that differentiates the really, really great, whatever it might be, you know, recently the Olympics and those athletes who come away with gold, who have just covered absolutely every detail off to be able to be at the pinnacle of what they do. Um, and it's that kind of commitment and application that is required to make something really, really great. So it's that last 1% that is the toughest, toughest call of all. Mm. Martin, thank you so much. It's been great chatting to you. Um, God, I mean, can't imagine the British interiors landscape without Farrenball and Fomoy. And Georgie, thank you so much for having me on your brilliant um, podcast. Um, I don't listen to many, but I do listen to yours. <laughs> oh, well... That's very polite of you. Thank you, Martin. I do hope people enjoyed that. Get on over to Fomoy and have a look at the fabrics I've been talking about for yourself. Um, you will not regret it. Um, that's it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends to listen to, and we will be back soon. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.